Great to see you this morning. Uh, if you're new, my name's John, and uh, we are talking about trusting God when it hurts. Uh, we're talking about the topic of suffering, and um, this is, I believe, session number five. Already, time flies when you're having fun, isn't that right? Yes, yes. So if you were here last week, um, Dan King addressed one way the Bible shows us how to respond uh, to our suffering, and that was the topic of lament. And uh, he described lament as a prayer of pain that leads to trust. And, um, and so if you weren't here for that, I, I believe that was recorded, and I would encourage you to, to take a listen to that. Um, some of the topics we've been talking about as of late are a little more biblical, theological, and, um, and we, we, we really want to talk practically um, about suffering as well. And so last week on lament, I think, is a very important, uh, very important topic. Two weeks ago, we addressed the issue of suffering and God. And we noted that according to the Bible, God is all-powerful, yeah, God is good, and God is totally sovereign. He does whatever he pleases, and, and yet there is evil and suffering in the world, and we ask the question, you know, how can all those things be true together, simultaneously? In other words, if God is good, all-powerful, and totally sovereign, how could he not act to prevent evil and suffering? That was the main question a couple weeks ago. And, and we said that various people have tried to answer that question in different ways. And one of those ways is by denying that God is all-powerful. Remember we talked about uh, Rabbi Kushner and his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And that was his basic, basic attempt to, to answer that question. Others have attempted to answer the question by denying that God is good. We, we talked about that a little bit. And still others have attempted to answer that question by um, denying that suffering is real. You know, it's, it's an illusion. We need to see things clearly and, and get over um, our, this illusion that, that we're suffering. But none of those solutions really work, we said, because the Bible affirms that God is all-powerful, that God is good, and that suffering is real, okay? So, so our question for today really is, if God is good, all-powerful, and totally sovereign, how could he not act to prevent evil and suffering? We're going to try to answer that question positively this morning, okay? And basically, the answer I'm going to propose doesn't eliminate mystery. We're going to talk about there's, there's mystery. But it does affirm, the answer to that, to that question does affirm that God is sovereign and that God can use evil for a good purpose, although that purpose or those purposes may not be revealed to us. Okay? So that's kind of where we're going to head today, Lord willing. Okay? Let me pray for us before we begin.
Our Father, we thank you that we can address you as our Father. And Lord, suffering is inevitable. Father, suffering is inevitable. And Lord, I know there's many here this morning who are suffering significantly. Father, we pray that, that Lord, as we examine your word, as we, as we study, as we think, God, that you would, you would help us. Lord, I pray these would not be merely theological, educational, academic topics, but Lord, that you would minister to us as we, as we walk in this valley of tears. So Father, we pray that you would help us this day. Help us to look to you. Help us to trust you even when it hurts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So real quick, here's a few objectives that I have for today. Um, this is what I'm hoping to accomplish. I'm hoping that we can affirm, as we talk today, that we can affirm that Scripture teaches that God is sovereign. I, I want to I review that. I also want us to be able to acknowledge that there is mystery regarding evil suffering and God's sovereignty. Like, we don't have any lockdown, eliminate all the mystery involved with evil and suffering. So we just want to acknowledge that, okay? And then the third thing I'm hoping that we can affirm or accomplish today is that Scripture teaches that God uses evil and suffering for some good purpose, although that good purpose may not be revealed to us. Okay? So that's, I, I hope those are, you know, appropriate goals or objectives for what we want to do today in our time together. Now, here's the way I want to start, though. Before we attempt to... Uh, accomplish those theological and or edu educational objectives, I have a pastoral objective that I want to first address. I recently read an article about an elderly Christian woman, uh, a sister in Christ, who had lost a son in his, I think, early 30s, and this happened many years prior, and um, she was recounting you know, her experience, you know, years earlier when that happened, of walking through that in the context of the church. And she said this. If one more person quotes Romans 8.28 to me, I'm going to punch them in the face. What does Romans 8.28 say? For those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Yeah. If I hear one more person quote Romans 8.28 to me, I'm going to punch them in the face. Why do you think she responded this way to... I mean, let's just assume those were well-meaning people, right? And I mean, we just quoted scripture, it's true, right? Why would she respond that way? Yeah. 
Yeah, let's go, Kathy. She's hurting. Okay, she's hurting. She can't see any good in it. Yep, she's hurting. She's not ready to see good in it. Yeah, leave them. Yeah, I think it's not difficult. It's, it's, um, I mean, it could definitely be a Those are great comments. Excellent comments. I'm very grateful that you're all very pastorally sensitive. Like, seriously, that's really, really important. And the reason I'm saying this is because what we're going to talk about today, I don't want anybody to misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm not saying here's, you know, here's the answer now you know, share this with those who are really hurting around you. And I think you're all capturing exactly, there's a, there's a fitting word to be spoken at the right time, right? Proverbs talks about wisdom. There's a fitting word. And, you know, yes, there's Romans 8.28, but there's also Romans 12.15, weep with those who weep. Um, and... Yeah, I, I, I think you've hit on something, uh, Alicia. I think part of it is our discomfort. Like, it's hard to sit with people who are suffering. Like, like my, my mom still is in the process of grieving the loss of her, her great husband. My, my father was a great guy. And it's hard still to sit with her pain for me and I just want to say something to, to kind of escape that feeling and so I do think I think you're on to something that sometimes that says more about us just wanting it to go away yeah and so and I love I love what Jenny said too that, um, but what I'm going to say is what we're going to talk about today the time to get the time to get these things clear in your mind is before suffering comes. And, and even once we have those, there's a process of grieving, and those things may not activate for some time. 
Like it takes, it takes time to process suffering and grief. So again, um, I'm, I guess I'm preaching to the choir. You're already, you're already clear about those things. And um, I, I just want to make sure, I, I just want to make sure that, that I say that up front. Okay. Um, so that's, that's what we're going to talk about today, though. God's sovereignty in suffering and, and the fact, um, some, of the, some of the biblical truths that are part of that. Yes, Kathy. That's, you know, that all this underscores the importance of what Dan uh, taught last week, you know, grieving, lamenting, you know, we, we, we all, I mean, I'm speaking to myself, like learning how to do that well and, and learning to, to do that as the church, as the body of Christ, learning to do that together. That's so important because to your point, Kathy, we don't just get over it. That, that's, that, that's not how... I mean, we may try to do that, but, but that, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, all that, as we begin to talk about God's sovereignty. Um, so again, the question that we've been asking is, if God is good, all-powerful, and totally sovereign... How could he not act to prevent evil and suffering? And first, I want to get clear about what we mean by the term sovereign. What does that, what does that mean? What does that fancy theological word mean? What does it mean that God is sovereign? Yes, Rob. He's overall. Yeah, he's overall. Okay, what else? He has all authority. He's, he's all-powerful. He has all authority. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about this? Let's try this. The fact that God is sovereign essentially means that he has the power, wisdom, and authority to do anything he chooses within his creation. He does whatever he pleases. He's in control of everything. Ultimately. Okay. Um. Yeah, he does whatever he pleases. And, and we saw that one of the solutions to the question that I've been asking was to, was to deny God's sovereignty altogether, to say he really isn't that powerful, right? But some Christians have tried to, to answer that question by limiting God's sovereignty. So they would say that God can act, 
but he chooses not to act out of respect for human freedom. You may have heard that. It's called the free will defense, right? And again, I'm not trying to bang on Christians that hold that like they're Christians, right? I'm just saying, as, as I read the Bible, I just don't see that biblically. So they would say that God can act, he is powerful, but he chooses not to out of respect for human freedom, okay? That's what we call the free will defense. And, and here's one way I've heard uh, to summarize that, that perspective. God has the raw power to set everything to rights. He can. But he withholds his power in order not to destroy the free will of his moral creatures. Some of you have heard that. Now here's the thing. There's an element of truth. Okay, so, so people that... People that you know, support the free will defense. It's not like they're just pulling that out of thin air. There, there are elements of biblical truth to the free will defense. It is true that God does not directly cause sin, right? God does not directly cause, cause sin, but he allows it. And God could, you know, eliminate much evil by simply destroying human freedom. He, he could do that, but he does not. People make real choices for which they are responsible, and those real choices come with real consequences. And so there's elements of truth to the free will defense. However, let's look at it biblically and try to evaluate it. So let's, let's do a quick biblical evaluation so, number one, we could say this as far as evaluating the free will defense. Number one, not all evil and suffering is an expression of human freedom. Right? I mean, a few weeks ago, there was a massive earthquake in Afghanistan, right? I think it killed over 2,000 people. That was not an expression that evil and suffering was not an expression of human freedom, okay? So not all evil is, is that, number one. The other thing we could say as far as trying to respond to a free will defense is that the psalmist cry out expecting God to do something. If God must allow free will, and hence suffering, why did the psalmist appeal to God and expect him to act on behalf of them? Does that make sense? So the psalmist cried, they expect God to act. For example, Psalm 35 begins this way. Psalm 35 begins, contend, O Yahweh, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. In other words, go after those who are going after me. Go get them. So again, it seems like there's an expectation uh, for God to act, to do something. 
So his respect of moral fr- or human freedom isn't total in that, re- in that sense. Number three, we could say this. If God is not sovereign in suffering, in other words, if he chooses, if, if human freedom is the highest, you know, the highest thing, um, then, then God isn't sovereign over suffering, and then suffering really doesn't have a purpose. It has no good purpose. If he's given over to the free will of human creatures and says, okay, I'm not going to... You know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to interfere, intervene. Then he doesn't have ultimate control. There's no ultimate purpose or potential good purpose um, in suffering. And you know, we'll talk about this a little bit more. But Genesis fifty twenty. If if that's the case, then Genesis fifty twenty doesn't make really any sense because. Joseph looked back over his life of suffering and he said to his brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so again, the assumption is that God is orchestrating all of those things that happen mysteriously. I mean, there's human actors doing things, but God is mysteriously directing and because of that Joseph could say God meant those hard things for a good purpose does that make sense okay and then here's another thing we could say Um, the biblical writers never question God's power they never give any indication that God has chosen to limit his sovereignty. Here's, here's what I mean by that. For sure, the biblical writers are very honest when they experience suffering. They may question God's goodness for a time, right? We've read that. They question God's goodness. What else do they do? They may complain that God has deceived them. Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah 4.10. Jeremiah accuses God of deceiving the nation, Israel. Wow, those are pretty pretty crazy words. Um, Job doubts God's justice for a time, and he speaks that. He doubts that God is treating him justly. They may wonder whether God has abandoned them. Remember the psalmist? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? There's prayers like that all over the psalms. So my point is, is that The biblical writers respond in various ways to suffering. But the one thing they don't do is question God's power. Let me let me try and let me try and show you that from from Scripture. For example, uh, not Psalms, Proverbs 16, 9 says this. The heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps, right? I mean, the writer of Proverbs clearly doesn't see a conflict between the the free will, or I I prefer the term free agency, 
of, of a man planning his way, but ultimately it's God who establishes steps. Those two things work together. So God is not, uh, is not relinquishing, you know, his sovereignty, his ultimate control. Does that make sense? Okay. Or Isaiah 45, 7 says this. I form light. This is the Lord speaking, Yahweh. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. So what is God saying there? He's got ultimate control of what? What, what, what does light represent metaphorically? Good and evil. Yeah. Yeah. I create, light. I create the good things that happen in the world. And I, I create the dark, you know, I allow the dark things. I'm in control of the good and the bad. All of it. I make well-being and create calamity. You see kind of the poetic duplication there, right? I form light and create darkness, and then he's going to repeat it in different words. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I believe the King James Version actually uses the word evil. Yeah. And actually, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Um, I think we're going to get to that. Yeah, he, he it uses, it's probably the Hebrew word ra, okay, and, and it can be translated evil. And, and in scripture, obviously, one word can take on different meanings. Yeah, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, but yeah, yep, yeah. So, so the point there of Isaiah 45, 7 is that the Lord is saying, I'm in charge of all of it, of all of it. Okay. In Psalm 60, verse 3, the psalmist says this. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. The psalmist understands God is the source of their suffering. Suffering is not outside of God's intention. In Exodus 4, verse 11, you remember this? God is speaking to Moses. Um, and I think it's in response to Moses. God says, Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, to your buddies in Egypt. I'm going to send you back there. And Moses is hemming and hawing. You know, I'm not smart. I can't speak. And the Lord responds, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? So the implication is that, that God makes people deaf and blind. And again, I, I want to say not necessarily for any sin or identifiable reason. Like you remember John 9, remember the disciples come to, to Jesus and they see this man who was blind from birth and they said, you know, who sinned, his, his parents or him, that he's blind? 
And Jesus says, it wasn't for either of those reasons. It was so that the works of God may be demonstrated in his life for the glory of God. The blindness was given by God so that the work of God might be displayed in him. It wasn't for, for any wrongdoing on the parents or the son. Um, and, and the point is there was a purpose to his blindness. It was not simply due to bad luck. Right? Okay? And then in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, we read this. For truly in this city, this is the disciples. Remember, they're, they're, they're praying. This is after Pentecost. Jesus has risen and ascended into heaven, King Jesus. And... Um, and the, the disciples are praying and they say, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They're praying to God for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your father, God, your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the earliest disciples believed that God had planned that the greatest crime in history would, would happen, would take, would be carried out. Herod, Pilate, and the Jewish council conspired that was them choosing to do that, and yet God was orchestrating and directing this. It was the set purpose of God that actually drew them together for that purpose. So here's the takeaway. God is sovereign over suffering, and yet he's not the author of sin. People make free choices that they're responsible for, and yet God is sovereign. He's ultimately sovereign. And here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith says it. And I think it says it really well and very clear. Um, I don't think I put all the verses in your, in your handout because there are so many of them. But um, if, if you need those, let me know. But the, the Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes it like this. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his, of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Okay, so that's a really helpful summary of biblical truth on how this all kind of works and fits together. Commenting on, on this statement, Ligon Duncan, I think, do I have this? No, sorry. Uh, a guy named Ligon Duncan, he's a, he's, a, uh, he's a theologian, reformed theologian, he says this. God ordains everything that happens, but isn't responsible for sin, and people are not puppets. What they do matters. I mean, that's a good summary of the Westminster of this, of this paragraph here. God ordains everything that happens. 
but isn't responsible for sin, and people are not puppets. What they do matters. Yeah. So the question is, how can it be that God has sovereign control over everything that happens, and yet he's not the author of sin? How can it be that God has sovereign control over everything, and yet people make real, responsible choices? And there's mystery here, right? How does that all work together? There's mystery here, but just because there's mystery doesn't mean that it's not true. Scientists, some of you are scientists, scientists affirm that light is both a wave and a particle, right? That light behaves as both a wave and a particle. Here's the thing. Scientists don't know how that is. Like, why? how does that work? All they know is that when, when they perform experiments, they can discern that light behaves as a wave in certain situations, and it behaves as a particle in others. And you're saying, John, what in the world does this have to do with what we're talking about? Well, here's my point. There's mystery. Like in the natural world, light can be a wave and a particle, both. And what I'm saying is, if the creation has revealed something mysterious like that, when scripture reveals that God is sovereign and people are responsible, just because it's mysterious and we don't completely understand it, doesn't mean it's not true, right? Okay, well, so far we've seen that scripture teaches that God is sovereign and that there's mystery regarding evil, suffering, and God's sovereignty. In the time we have left, I want us to consider this question. Here's, here's the question. Though God's control over suffering is largely a mystery... Is there any evidence that even when we are suffering, God loves us, sympathizes with us, and is concerned for our good? So in the time we have left, let's, let's just consider that question and try to consider it biblically, okay? So number one, we could say this. Some suffering has a good result that we can sometimes later identify. Not always, but sometimes some suffering we can later identify. I, I said Genesis 50, 20. That's, that, that, that's really a helpful verse. It was much, much later where Joseph was able to say both to his brothers and to his God as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. That was not a short time of suffering. It wasn't. Yeah, I mean, if you do the math, you know, it's what? Seven, eight chapters, whatever it is, right? But if you do the math, yeah, it was years. It took years. So, so again, some suffering has a good result that we can sometimes later identify. Not always. 
Okay, here's to, uh, to John's point. The word evil can be used in two different ways. So um, he pointed out that passage, Isaiah uh, 45, 7, um, probably the word for calamity there, I think it was calamity, was, was probably the word, uh, Hebrew word raw, which, which can be translated evil. In fact, in Jeremiah eleven seventeen, we read something similar. It says this, the Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you. Now, in some translations, it's translated evil. And it's the Hebrew word raw. Okay? So, the Lord who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil, same word, raw, Hebrew word raw, that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done. So, so why is that significant? Because those words can be used, the same word can be used in two different ways. And I think what, what the ESV tries to do is bring out this different nuance. It translates it disaster because what, it, what it's trying to say, here, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. The first occurrence means disaster, suffering, pain, or adversity, or calamity, right? That God is bringing calamity. He's bringing hard things. To the people. But the motive, when, it, when evil is used of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it speaks to wickedness in their heart. So the point is, is that God doesn't have evil intentions. That's, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. That was probably convoluted. But, um, so when you see texts like that, know that there's a distinction there. One word can be used a little bit differently. The other important thing to know that when we're suffering, even though we've said that God ultimately ordains it or allows it, that does not mean that he's not moved by our suffering. Okay? God is moved, to say it positively, God is moved by our suffering. Though God allows or ordains it to occur for his own reasons, and we would say for his good reasons that we may not know of, Yet he's moved by our suffering. He weeps with those who weep. That's why we need to do that. Because that's what love looks like. And God is love. In Psalm 56, verse 3, the psalmist says this. You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows each one of your sufferings. He's moved by them. Could you share that reference? Yeah, Psalm 56, verse 3. Psalm 56, 3. What's that? Oh, the tears in the bottle. Is that in, that's not in this verse. Um, did I mess that up? Psalm 56. Oh, I'm sorry. 56, 8. Try 56, 8. Yes. Yes. Sorry about that. 56, 8. I'm getting so old I can't, can't even read, read, my, read this writing. 
Um, so God is moved by our suffering. Even though he ordains, he allows it, he, he's still moved by it. And then finally, God in his son Jesus Christ has experienced our grief and our sorrow. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 describes Jesus' work on the cross. You know this verse, these verses. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's put them on himself. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Here's the great mystery of suffering and the great mystery of the gospel that the eternal God would take on human flesh and step into our suffering and experience suffering in our place so that we could be reconciled to him. What kind of God would do that. That's. I was going to bring up the place in the New Testament where, where John has died and Jesus waits and comes to Martha and Mary. And, and, and just by Martha speaking to him, not Mary, excuse me, Mary speaking, not the Martha. Mary speaking to him. Well, yeah, but after Mary speaking, he weeps. And, and I'm reading that passage and going, well, you know, he's going to make it all better. He's going to fix everything. But he weeps because of her pain. Yeah. Her yes. And he weeps with us. And he knows what it feels like. I love, I love, I love Hebrews 4, right? It says we do not, have a, do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, right? But it has experienced, you know, all that we have and yet without sin, you know. Therefore, let us go boldly, confidently to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling Nobody in the world would ever imagine a crucified, let me say it this way, nobody ever would think to worship a crucified man. That's what God is like. That's what our God is like. It's, it's a staggering mystery, the gospel. So the point here is that though God's control over suffering is largely a mystery, he is in control. Even though he ordains suffering, he loves us, he sympathizes with us, and he's concerned for our good. I had a couple of questions in case we had time, but these would be good questions for you to wrestle with. We've, we've kind of talked about the first one. How would talk about God's sovereignty and goodness, how would you, I, I messed that up, how would you talk about God's sovereignty and goodness to someone who is now suffering? And we've, we've kind of talked about maybe some things to do and not do. Yeah, Jenny, go ahead. Well, just everything you're saying makes me see more clearly how this, this uh, the convergence of the brokenness of this world and the goodness of God is a holy place. Mm. So everything, mm. the tears that Jesus cried for suffering, um, he says, precious in his sight are the death of his saints. Mm. I mean, there's this holy place in the convergence of this world and who he is. 
That's well said. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so, so, so think about how would you talk about God's sovereignty and goodness to someone who is now suffering? Hint, Romans 12, 15. Weep with those who weep. That, that would be a good start. And then does knowing that God has good purposes for your suffering help in your suffering? Why or why not? And again, we talked about how, you know, maybe I know that intellectually, but to activate that. And, and sometimes it's, it's mysterious because sometimes you may speak that to someone with fear and trembling, and that actually may help them. So it's, it's always challenging to know how to, how to care for our suffering brothers and sisters. So it takes a lot of prayer and wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about instead of listening to yourself, talk to yourself. Mm. And mm. I know that as Christians, really, sometimes I think I should be better now at remembering there's a purpose in this, and God is going to come to my rescue. Maybe not when I think He's going to, <clears throat> when He knows He needs to, and and to be more patient and let myself deal with my hurt to get to the other side. You know, and sometimes you get angry with yourself and you don't remember that fast because like when the rescue comes or the peace comes or yeah. the answer comes, then yeah. you go, when did I let myself? And so that's really been sticking in my head. I said, listening to myself, talking to myself, yeah. you know, yeah. sharing the gospel with myself. That's really good. That's really good. I think it was uh, Paul Tripp who said, you're the most influential person in your life. You know, you're always talking to yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, yeah, you need to be careful. Like, what am I saying? And, and is that what God is saying to me? You know, is that what he would be saying? I, I've got I to gotta wrap us up. I'm, I'm really sorry. Um, okay, so we've seen that Scripture teaches God is sovereign. There's mystery regarding evil suffering and God's sovereignty. And that God uses evil and suffering for some good purpose. Although that purpose may not be revealed to us. The scriptural teaching that God ordains whatever comes to pass is called God's providence. You may have heard that word, God's providence. And the doctrine of providence is not merely a doctrine for us to affirm in our heads only, right? But it points to a good, powerful, and totally sovereign God whom we can trust. Um, I'm, I'm going to share this quote. I, in light of recent circumstances in Israel... I mean, and, you know, we talked about transgender. I mean, there's just so much going on that, honestly, my heart is tempted to be even more anxious about life. Um, and I, I just wonder if some of the awful anxiety that's prevalent in our culture is, is because everything happens by chance. There is no person ultimately in control. It's just these awful things happening constantly. John Calvin, speaking 500 years ago, said this about God's providence. And I want to leave us with this. We cannot really live without the knowledge of the providence of God. Because without it, we would be harassed with doubts and fears, being uncertain whether or not the world was governed by chance. 
Now, what can be more awfully tormenting than to be constantly racked with doubt and anxiety? And we will never be able to arrive at a calm state of mind until we are taught to repose with implicit confidence in the providence of God. And I like that he said taught, like we're all in process, right? And so let me pray to that end. Our Father and our God, we, it's easy for us in settings like this to, to affirm your sovereignty, to affirm you're in control. And yet, Father, it's so hard for us when we experience difficult things and, and sometimes even really good things to, to acknowledge and trust in your, in your sovereign care. So, Father, I pray that you would grow each of us, help us to more implicitly trust that you, even in the midst of lots of chaos in our world, lots of evil, lots of suffering, Lord, would you grow us in confidence that you are the sovereign one. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.